Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Um, I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the Americas Program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. In recent months, Guatemala has caught the eye of the international community, making global headlines. Seen as a long-shot candidate against former First Lady Sandra Torres, Bernardo Arevalo made it out of the first round of the presidential election on June 25th, and then won the August 20th second round decisively with 58% of the vote. His electoral success sparked a period of hope and renewed enthusiasm for democracy and reform throughout the country. This moment of optimism, however, quickly gave way to unrest and tension, as the transition process in Guatemala has been plagued by efforts to block Arevalo from taking office. In the months since his victory, a small elite drawn from the ranks of the political, military, and judicial spheres, often referred to as the Pact of the Corrupt, tried to derail the president-elect from taking office. In particular, Attorney General Consuelo Porras, some judges and members of Congress, pursued efforts to harass Arrevalo and his political party, Semilla, with spurious charges, lifted immunity from prosecution for the magistrates of the electoral tribunal who had certified the election, and attempted to overturn the electoral results. In response, the United States imposed visa restrictions on nearly 300 Guatemalan congressmen and business leaders, while the Organization of American States, other international organizations, and civil society raised mounting calls to respect the outcome of the election. For the time being, their tireless efforts appear to have paid off, with President Arevalo taking office on January 14th, but only after a last-ditch effort by members of Congress to block him. While the risk of a slow-moving coup has dissipated, the efforts by the Pact of the Corrupt to block him from office reveal the profound weakness of Guatemala's democracy. To unpack the significance of Arevalo's election for democracy in the region, and to shed light on the attempts to ban him from power and the prospects for democratic governance in Guatemala, we are joined today by Ambassador Frank Mora. Ambassador Mora is the United States' permanent representative to the Organization of American States, and was previously in senior positions within the State Department, the Defense Department, as well as in academia. In this episode, we will delve into the situation taking shape in Guatemala, ongoing challenges and opportunities, as well as the role of the OES in helping Guatemalans navigate a fraught political process. Thank you for joining us today, Ambassador Mora. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk about all that we're doing at the OES, so thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. International observers deemed the Guatemalan establishment's maneuvers to ban Arevalo from power as a type of soft coup. The OES in particular was at the forefront of calls for Guatemala to uphold its commitment to democracy and to the peaceful transfer of power. Even so, the threats to Guatemalan democracy and to the newly installed president have certainly not dissipated. Could you begin by sketching a scene setter for us? What was the OAS's role in pushing Guatemalan authorities to respect the election results? What are the organization's plans now that the inauguration has come to pass? 
So yeah, thank you, Chris. So we at the at the OAS and I should say at the State Department have been working on on a lot of issues since I began my service here as U.S. Ambassador to the OAS so roughly a year ago. And Guatemala has been a top priority. Let me start by saying, and I think it's worth repeating, that it's the Guatemalan people who are the protagonists in this story. It's the Guatemalan people who got us to where we are today with the inauguration of Bernardo Alevaro. And it was the Guatemalan people who went to the ballot boxes, of course, and made their voices heard in large numbers in elections, recognized as legitimate and credible by countless international observers, of course, including the OAS and the European Union. So alongside them, however, I think throughout this process, yes, the U.S. government publicly and privately condemned attempts to the last minute, as you said, by the public ministry and others to interfere with a smooth and democratic transition. Indeed, from the very beginning of the electoral process, we, and by we, I guess I mean the State Department and the OES, we were committed to supporting a peaceful democratic transition in Guatemala. All our objective, and again, the State Department and the OES objective throughout the hemisphere is to support democracy. So when there were efforts to subvert the will of the Guatemalan people over two rounds of voting, as you mentioned in your preamble, we stood with those seeking to defend democracy and the rule of law in that beleaguered country. When there were anti-democratic attempts by the attorney general, by the public ministry, among other actors, to derail the democratic transition, we worked with our partners at the OAS to make sure that the Guatemalan peoples knew that the international community was watching and that we were going to stay seized by the issue as it was developing. We have spoken, I think, Chris, with a powerful, clear, and united voice, not just across our U.S. government interagency, but also alongside with member states of the OAS. And we will continue to do so. I should also add that, and it's important to be clear, what took place exactly in Guatemala, Chris. There was political targeting of opposition members. There were raids on storage facilities, housing election results. There were opening ballots, boxes. And of course, the public ministry was pursuing arrest warrants against electoral workers and other political actors who participated in the elections, which, as I said earlier, was widely recognized and certified as legitimate by international bodies. You saw our government, the U.S. government, respond to these anti-democratic efforts with a comprehensive set of actions. You saw visa restrictions and other individual sanctions and regular visits to the country by high-level State Department and congressional officials. At the OAS, and here I think it's important to emphasize, the Permanent Council repeatedly called meetings to address the issue of democracy. About 11 or 12 meetings, Chris to talk about the threats to democracy in Guatemala. And we stood shoulder to shoulder with a diverse coalition of actors. It was extraordinary that in the last resolution that was approved by the Permanent Council, 29 member states voted in favor of that resolution. In, in an environment that sometimes is as polarized as the Permanent Council can be, that's quite extraordinary. It shows the commitment on the part of a diverse coalition 
of member states who were standing by the Guatemalan people. So with the support of the Permanent Council, the Secretary General and organized several missions that made multiple trips during that transition, which I think were also pivotal in this process. So I think it speaks the idea that the OS has spoken and will continue to speak with a unified voice to defend a rule-based order sends a signal not just to Guatemala, but to other countries in the region who perhaps we may see further declines in the rule of law and in democracy. Yeah, we'll get to maybe some of the other elections that will occur later this year, some of which certainly will be controversial. But this is a really interesting point, the work of the, of the Permanent Council. I, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up question. You said 29 member states voted in favor of the last resolution and it met 11 or 12 times. The Permanent Council is no stranger to tackling other hotspots where democracy has eroded or fallen off entirely. What do you think made the Guatemalan case a success where, without mentioning countries, other efforts by the organization to address democracy have not had the same levels of success? Because I think in principle, the efforts on the part of the Pact of the Corrupt, as you rightly described, were so openly disrespectful of the rule of law, of the democratic rule of law, of the rules of the game. It was so outwardly in their attempts to undermine the results and to keep Bernardo Revelo from coming to office that it really brought a number of countries together. And I think it's part of an effort that we are increasingly seeing at the organization to remind ourselves, remind member states of the commitment we all made in the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And I think, as, as you may know, we are undergoing an effort at the OES, a group of voluntary groups, who are having discussions about how do we strengthen, how do we engage the Democratic Charter in light of the challenges to democracy in the region. That is why, under, I think, this administration, we have doubled down on how we use diplomacy to enhance the role of the organization on issues related to democratic backsliding. Mm -hmm. And the record is clear. We're trying to have an impact. The OAS is relevant on the key issues facing the region today. The first, but certainly not the only one, is the issue of democracy. And so Guatemala, for me at least, seemed like a test case, whether we were going to stand to the plate and really defend the will of the Guatemalan people. And I think that brought a lot of member states around so that by the end of this process, we had as I mentioned, 29 member states supporting a resolution. Right. So, I mean, clearly in the case of Guatemala, the OAS and the international community played a pivotal role. But we need to recall also, and to use your words, the Guatemalan people themselves were the protagonists. We need to recall the outpouring of popular support for Arredo, including and especially, I think, among Guatemala's important indigenous community. How would you gauge the strength of Guatemalan civil society and political mobilization today? I think it's very strong. You know, I was in Guatemala for the inauguration. We arrived a few days prior and we met with the indigenous leaders. And clearly they have indicated to us that in many ways they had an important role with the protests that occurred. I think it was in October that blocked and paralyzed much of the city. And that was a reaction to the efforts on the part of the public ministry to undermine the results. They feel 
that they have also been protagonists. They've had a critical role in bringing Bernardo Revolo to office and not just through the ballot box. And they expect, and they told us that they will re-engage to ensure two things. One, that the results of democracy and the position of a Revolo remain strong, but also they're gonna hold the president-elect, or in this case, President Revolo's feet to the fire. They have certain expectations, which the president mentioned in his inaugural address that address the issues or the grievances of many of these indigenous communities with respect to social inclusion, poverty, malnutrition, et cetera, all that were mentioned by the president and that are key priorities for these indigenous groups. So they, I have a strong sense that they will remain very engaged on this issue going forward to, in a sense, protect democracy and to ensure that the commitments that the president has made are fulfilled. From a governance standpoint, Arevalo faces a hostile Congress and entrenched corruption. He's likely to struggle with these problems throughout his mandate. But as you said, he will be able to rely on these groups, the indigenous movement and civil society that has supported his election and helped him through the transition period and the period of, of the attempted soft coup. So what are the main issues that he should be prepared to tackle within his first 100 days? And how likely is he to be able to move key pieces of his agenda through a divided and partially hostile Congress? So, yeah, it's an important question, Chris. I don't want to comment too much on what President Revelo may or may not do in his, let's say, first 100 days. I will leave that to a, perhaps a future CSIS interview with him and his team or with our U.S. ambassador to Guatemala, Toby Bradley. But I, I do want to say that we at the department and, of course, at the USOS mission, are looking forward very much to working with President Revelo to deepen our two countries' long and productive partnership. I also want to say, and I think it's important to highlight because I didn't mention in my initial remarks, that the U.S. Senate played an important role here. On December 20th, they confirmed new Ambassador Toby Bradley, but also made important bipartisan statements congratulating President Revelo which I think are very positive development for U.S.-Guatemalan relations. So we are excited that we'll have Ambassador Bradley in Guatemala to get started in Guatemala as soon as possible as he continues sort of our shared mission of strengthening our bilateral relationship. You and, and your audience, Chris, may also have seen that the U.S. government recently announced our plans to launch a high-level economic dialogue with Guatemala to advance the Vice President Harrison's Central America Forward Initiative, which is a critical piece of our policy in Central America. The dialogue will be one of many ways in which the United States and Guatemala will continue to engage in high-level strategic discussions on a range of economic and commercial objectives to supply, for example, supply chains and workforce development issues, right? Promoting nearshoring, et cetera that all go to addressing the root causes of migration, which is, as you know, an important issue for the United States and for the administration. At the State Department, we'll continue strengthening our programs that create opportunities for Guatemalans in Guatemala. And we hope that President Rebel's government ushers in new opportunities for Guatemalans to strengthen their local roots and increase prosperity in their communities. And so we are committed to building on our joint efforts under the root causes strategy that we have for Central America, launched by the administration to support 
what the president said in his inaugural address that I heard, which is to support a more inclusive, stable, and prosperous future for the Guatemalan people. Given what you've just said, I imagine it was not by coincidence or not just coincidence that Samantha Power, the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, was the head of delegation to the Arevalo inauguration. Does that signal this level of commitment on the part of the U.S. to engage in high-level economic dialogue, discussions, and action? Well, yes, the administrator and USAID have been very involved and active during this process. I think their engagements will only deepen, considering the agenda, the priorities that the president has set out in both public and private meetings, including in his inaugural address. But this will be a whole in government process, right? I think USAID will play a critical, critical role. But this is the U.S. government who will be sort of engaging Guatemala and some of the other Central American countries to address this issue of the root causes of migration. And we have to think in those terms, right? This is not just one agency. It's truly an interagency process. And it's important that also in the delegation, the presidential delegation, there was a member of Congress in the delegation, which I think it was important as well. So it's important that we all sort of think about this in national terms and not just in terms of one group or one agency. Right, right. So pivoting away from what the U.S. government, whole of government engagement with Guatemala can be to your other hat as, uh, or your hat, I should say, not the other hat, but your hat as a U.S. ambassador to the OAS. What can the OAS, what can that organization do to help the Arevalo government tackle some of the major challenges in Guatemala, particularly, for instance, corruption with the U.N. International Anti-Corruption Mission the CICIG having closed several years ago and corruption remaining endemic in the country. What could the OAS, for instance, do on corruption or other issues that you might think it could play a role in? So, yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's important to address that, Chris. As you know, as you know well, the OAS has many tools at its disposal to support initiatives on issues as diverse as climate change or migration or socioeconomic inclusion, et cetera. And I'm not just talking here about the Permanent Council, right? I'm really talking about the OAS Secretariat, which does tremendous underappreciated work throughout the region and that sometimes their work is not highlighted to show the kind of impact and relevance that the organization has beyond the discussions that might occur within the Permanent Council. And for instance, you asked about corruption and I want to note here that at the OS, we have a Secretariat of Multidimensional Security, which promotes cooperation among OS member states to assess, prevent, and respond to threats to security, including threats like money laundering and organized crime. As you also know, Chris, the OS is the preeminent multilateral forum in our hemisphere in addressing many of these issues. It is a place where some of the Biggest issues in the hemisphere are considered and debated every day. It's a place where coalitions can be built and energized and mobilized in support of international law, international institutions, and the common good of all member states in the organization, of course, in the hemisphere. Today, across the hemisphere, as you know also, Chris, democracies are facing unpresidential challenges, and yet democracies in particular, people's belief in democracy have shown themselves 
to be remarkably resilient, despite the fact that many still believe that democracy is not delivering. I don't want to give a sort of fatalistic picture because we are seeing throughout the hemisphere that because people still believe in democracy, despite their frustrations, despite their sense that the democracies are simply not delivering the goods, democracy and democratic institutions are still holding to one degree or another, of course, depending on the country. The OAS will continue, I believe, to be at the center of this effort of protecting and supporting democracy in the Western Hemisphere, whether in Guatemala, Chris, or beyond. Now, I've said before that outside of democracy, which I can speak for hours, if you like, the second biggest challenge that we're facing in the hemisphere, and we've seen, for example, most recently in Ecuador, is organized transnational crime, which is obviously in many ways tied to the issue of migration as well. As criminal groups wreak havoc on communities, undermining the security and the illicit economy, migration flows will flow up. Now, criminal groups is not the only driver of migration, but we can't deny that this is an issue that is pushing people to seek better opportunities elsewhere. And across all indicators, all across our hemisphere, criminal organizations have penetrated, captured vulnerable communities and even exert tremendous influence over certain states. And it is a huge challenge in the region, which will not get any better soon. And I believe, we believe that the OAS is uniquely positioned to build coalitions to engage on all these fronts. And as Guatemala confronts some of these challenges, it should know as well that the OAS is uniquely positioned to promote and coordinate cooperation among all member states on issues big and small. So this is sort of the focus that I wanted to emphasize about this agenda that we're seeing in front of us and the role that the OS can play, particularly the Secretariat, in addressing these issues. Mm -hmm. So the Revelo administration takes office with Strong interest and commitment on the part of the United States government, bipartisan, as you, as you had mentioned earlier, and a strong interest and support on the part of the OAS, the Organization of American States, to help it address some of these challenges the government is facing. But aside from these structural challenges that the government is going to face, we're likely to continue to see the pact of the corrupt, people who are not interested in seeing Arevalo succeed with his agenda. How likely do you think there will be challenges or even attacks on his legitimacy and on his administration going forward? You know, Chris, I don't know what calculation those individuals or those sectors within Guatemalan society that were trying to derail the democratic process were making. But I will tell you, I think they have miscalculated, frankly. As a general matter, they should not underestimate the tools that we have we at the United States government have at our disposal, in large part because the hemisphere, in terms of the OAS, has spoken with one consistent, unified voice on this issue. And I think it is vitally important that the whole hemisphere has been speaking and should continue to speak with one voice 
if in fact this pact of the corrupt continue to undermine democratic governance in Guatemala. At a time when we complained or are concerned about the level of polarization in our region, which I think is true, our collective efforts to support the people of Guatemala have shown that there are many issues where there is consensus. And one example is that whatever your ideological inklings are or where you lie in the ideological spectrum, there was an understanding of what was and is still at stake in Guatemala. Sort of this unwavering commitment on the part of the international community and the United States, I believe, has had an impact that got us to January 14th and will continue to have an impact well beyond January 14th of this year. And for the U.S. government, we have consistently been speaking in one voice as well, Chris. We have said that individuals who engage in anti-democratic or corrupt activities open themselves to potential sanctions. And we have deployed accountability measures for those who undermine democracy and the rule of law and will continue to do so. The United States has added more than 40 Guatemalan nationals to the Section 353, which is the Corrupt and Democratic Actors Report, since 2021. These individuals include members of the Guatemalan Congress, Supreme Court justice magistrates, prosecutors, judges, and even private sector representatives. We have also imposed visa restrictions on about 300 Guatemalan nationals. And on December 1st of last year, the Department of Treasury imposed sanctions on the former head of the now defunct Centro de Gobierno, which is an action that really builds on and implements the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. So I know I've been repetitive on this, but I think it's important to underscore that at both at the OAS and across the U.S. government, our support for the Guatemalan government is and will continue to be unwavering in calling out corruption or abuses of authority. And I've said in various fora that Guatemala is something of a test for the OAS, a test case for the OAS. I say now, after attending the inauguration of President Revelo this past weekend, that efforts by the public ministry to undermine this election have failed. And the OAS has shown that it is up for the challenge and the challenges of today to address this particular issue as the threat to democracy in Guatemala. And I think that's no small feat, Chris. I, I couldn't agree more. And to pick up on some of the things you've mentioned, looking beyond Guatemala, 2024 has been recognized as perhaps the biggest election year in history on a global scale. And the Americas is no exception. In our region, presidential elections will be held in the Dominican Republic, in El Salvador, in Mexico, Panama, Uruguay, and of course, the United States. Elections should also be held in Venezuela. We'll see what happens with that. With several elections gaining momentum across the region, the U.S. and the OAS will become even more pivotal to ensure free and fair elections and guard against further democratic backsliding. What lessons can we draw from Guatemala for how the OAS and the broader international community should prepare for what promises to be a tumultuous electoral season? I mean, you've mentioned this unwavering commitment to democracy. I think that's probably the central answer. But what other lessons? Are there other lessons we can draw from Guatemala? 
as I said before, I think in my time as U.S. ambassador, there have been few issues that have galvanized the Permanent Council the way that Guatemala has. And I think that's a reflection of not just how people feel about some of the actions of the public ministry, among others, but I think it's also a reflection of where we are in terms of defending democracy in the region and how strong we have to stand against efforts to erode or to undermine the rule of law. I take this opportunity from your question, Chris, to sort of highlight a, an initiative that is ongoing at the OAS in the Permanent Council that addresses this issue of elections and democracy. And it's the sort of renewing, the strengthening of our commitment to the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which was signed some 23 years ago now. This charter is a critically important instrument that the Inter-American system has to not just express its commitment to shared values, which the, the document does, but also to move and take action in pushing back on efforts to undermine democracy in the region. So I think that for everyone watching how the OAS has responded in Guatemala from the first round of elections to January and beyond, I think they should now know that our commitment to protecting and defending democracy is sort of ironclad. And they should see, as so many of us know, that the OAS and its mission are as important today, the electoral observation missions are as important today as they've always been. Indeed, as you and your audience know well, the erosion of democracy today is threatening hard-fought progress that we've made in Latin America and the Caribbean over the last few decades. And so the OAS plays a critical role in this. And in facing these sort of unprecedented challenges in the hemisphere, particularly as it relates to democracy and these elections, I just want to say a word about what I call the gold standard of electro observation missions, which is the OAS missions. As you know, Chris, elections provide new opportunities to refresh, to renew, to reimagine our democracies. And we are watching these processes as they unfold all across the hemisphere. At the OAS, the OAS observation missions provide a vital, independent, impartial, mechanism to ensure transparency and confidence in the electoral process. And these missions not only provide technical assistance, but inspire trust in the electorate. And so I think efforts at undermining the electoral observation missions or somehow weaken are really counterproductive to the overall effort that we are engaged in in strengthening democracy and restoring trust and confidence in the institutions at a time when people indeed are in fact questioning them. So we need to double down. We need to invest even more politically and financially on the charter, on the electoral observation missions, on the Secretary for Strengthening Democracies, which is, I think, the mechanism or the instrument by which the Permanent Council and the OAS can express its commitment to defending democracy in the region. From Venezuela, where, as you know, Nicolas Maduro has yet to set a date for the election, to El Salvador, where President Nayib Bukele is running for office again, despite a constitutional ban, 
to Mexico, which holds the promise of electing the first female president in the country's history. There's an impressive amount of electoral activity in the Americas. While every election is consequential in its own right, which races are you especially focused on in your capacity as U.S. ambassador to the OAS? Well, all these elections are important. You know, Chris, throughout the world, and in fact, indeed, in our own hemisphere, we do see elected leaders attacking independent judiciaries, marshalling the forces of the state to undermine electoral results. They're cracking down on civil society organization, on the media. We see these efforts at disinformation, misinformation, distracting, destroying, dividing. So we're seeing this deep political polarization. And we see states that for one reason or another are utilizing these tools to weaken democracy and to enhance the levels of autocracy in the region. Again, it's the OAS that can play a fundamental role. Other actors must and should, but I think it's important that we have a sort of clear-eyed view of what the obstacles are and the way to address these challenges that democracy face with not less democracy, Chris, but of course with more democracy. And democracy has proven time and again that it is the best system. It's got its problems. It's not perfect, of course. But it is the system that best deals with our global challenges and can contribute to a free and open and prosperous world. And I think we, and by here, we, I mean the, the organization, have an obligation, right? This preeminent form has an obligation through its different mechanisms that I already mentioned to ensure that the levels or mechanisms of accountability, of transparency, are kept strong, viable, and legitimate throughout the hemisphere. You mentioned Venezuela. I think at the OAS, Chris, there's strong support for the Barbados process. I think everyone is interested in a political solution and a transition to democracy. No one, I think, opposes that. This administration has been very clear about its support for democratic actors in Venezuela. We will always support the Venezuelan people in their calls for the restoration of democracy. And I think we've done so over the past two years, whether it is through Mexico process or, as I said, the Barbados Agreement. So the Venezuelan people are leading this process, will continue to lead this process, but with the support of other states in the region and, of course, with all the member states supporting the demand the clamoring on the part of Venezuelan people for a better future. Ambassador Mora, is there something that we didn't cover, any other issue or any other topic you'd like to highlight or add? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple. One that I want to sort of underscore because I think it is important. So, Chris, there is no silver bullet solution to the myriad of global problems in the world today whether we're talking about democratic erosion or ideological polarization, et cetera. Identifying solution to these global challenges, however, begins with a recognition that many of them are indeed global, and that we must forge and utilize international mechanisms, international cooperation to address them in an effective and in a comprehensive way. 
And we have seen the success of these efforts, for example, as we've been talking about in Guatemala. So partnership and coalition building, particularly at the OS, but not exclusively at the OS, is a center of our work because it allows us, and by us, I mean the State Department and the OS, to mobilize communities, cities, countries, civil society organizations or actors behind a shared vision and opportunities in a way that benefits everyone in the hemisphere. And in investing in coalition building has borne fruit on issues big and small, from addressing, as I said, democratic declines to sustainable development to investments in vulnerable communities. We have to find and we will continue to find common ground again and again at the OAS and shown through these results that democracy and democratic governments can in fact deliver. The secretary, Chris, Secretary Blinken often refers in his some of his remarks to the what he calls the power and purpose of American diplomacy. And that means basically committing to revitalizing our partnerships and alliances in pursuit of a more stable, more secure, and more prosperous world. And a big part of diplomacy requires, as the secretary said, and I quote here from sort of building new coalitions to tackle the toughest shared challenges of our time. That is investing in a broader set of partners that includes not just national governments, but local governments, some national governments, and civil society organizations and academia and the private sectors, and of course, citizens, and especially young and emerging leaders in our hemisphere. And as we often said, at the heart of our strategy is an understanding that we're going to commit ourselves to truly addressing the challenges of our day in a lasting and in a sustainable way. We cannot go it alone. We cannot address these global transnational issues by ourselves. And anyone who claims that any one nation can do so is not being honest. So the multitude of challenges we, we as the hemisphere, face today are often interconnected. So for the U.S. government to solve them, we need partners. That's critical. And we need international institutions, which provide the space and the platform, the mechanisms, the norms, the agreements to move forward on these issues. And indeed, there's arguably no greater show of strength, no better use of our influence and resource in the decision to invest in these institutions, to invest in international cooperation around a rule-based order, particularly at this moment when we are seeing a number of countries around the world committed to undermining those institutions, to undermining that order. Our success or the success of the OAS and other multilateral bodies and the success of our coalition building will allow us to tackle these 21st century challenges and the opportunities, take advantage of the opportunities that we have moving forward. And so maybe as a last point, I'd like to say, Chris, that this is not just a government to government effort, whether you're an academic 
a student activist, a think tank leader, or just a concerned citizen, I invite you to join us in this collective effort, this important effort, through your areas of interest, through your organizations, on issues of interest to you, to share your views with us as we continue this ongoing process of dialogue, engagement. So Chris, thanks again for the opportunity and for the space to have a conversation with you on these important issues facing the hemisphere, facing the Organization of American States. I'm grateful for the opportunity and look forward to future opportunities to continue this conversation, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ambassador Mora. Thank you so very much for joining us on 35 West. And we appreciate you taking the time and to share these insights, not only about Guatemala, but democratic backsliding and the important work of building coalitions to face transnational threats and challenges. And we'll certainly take you up on the possibility of another podcast in the future. Thank you once again. Thank you, Chris. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.